you're listening to this podcast, I'm guessing I don't need to sell you on the importance of science. It's like definitely important. <laughs> I mean, just think about all the technology that we've come to rely on. That's science. The COVID vaccine we so desperately need. Science. The new cooking appliance that I don't technically need but is still very cool. Science! We've even come up with a fancy acronym for these disciplines because we value them so much. You've probably heard of STEM fields. S-T-E-M. It stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. And as a society, we're relying on people in these fields to innovate and move us forward. But for a long time, those people have all looked pretty similar. And a big chunk of the population who could contribute to these important issues have been left out. For example, data from the National Science Board shows that although women in STEM fields are on the rise, as of 2017, women accounted for just 29% of all science and engineering employment in the United States. And while African Americans make up 12% of the U.S. adult population and Latinos 16%, they occupied just 55 and 7.5% of science and engineering jobs in 2017, respectively. The reasons for the underwhelming numbers of these groups in STEM are many. They range from blatant discrimination to more subtle stereotyping. But another dilemma is something of a vicious cycle. Experts have suggested that if science already feels like a boys' club, then girls just don't think it's for them, and the boys' club continues. If it seems like there aren't many black scientists, then young black kids can't easily see themselves in those roles either, and the disparities persist. So what can we do to create communities that are more welcoming and inclusive, that provide a feeling of belonging that extends across all budding scientists? You're listening to Opinion Science, the show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. I'm Andy Luttrell. And we're making podcast history this week. I mean, it's not a big deal in the history of all podcasts, but it is for this podcast. <laughs> two guests at the same time. I'm excited to talk to two friends who are doing very cool work together. Eva Pietri is an assistant professor of psychology at IUPUI. That's, I think, Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. <laughs> and India Johnson is an assistant professor of psychology at Butler University. The three of us were in grad school at the same time, and after Eva and India graduated, they were able to keep the flame alive by collaborating on a bunch of really interesting and important studies. Together, they've been looking at addressing issues with representation in STEM fields. In particular, how important are role models when it comes to signaling an inclusive environment in these fields? And how might that be uniquely valuable for people with intersectional identities? That is, people who have multiple aspects of who they are that have been marginalized. Particularly in this context, that's women of color. Uh, but by the way, just a heads up, at one point Eva and India talk about a study they did looking at Kamala Harris as a role model in politics. But we, we recorded this conversation before the 2020 election, so if it seems weird that we're talking about Kamala without mentioning the fact that she was elected vice president, that's why. Okie doke. I'm ready to jump into the interview, so... Here we go. Could you talk about, you know, where the collaboration between you came from? Obviously, you know, I knew you both in grad school and I don't remember you both working on this stuff at that point. No. So this all was after you'd left, after you were around each other constantly. 
at yeah. that point you said, wait, maybe we should work together. <laughs> yeah, we didn't collaborate in grad school. <laughs> yeah, um, Eva, you can jump in if if you have more details. But I feel like this idea came about because we were at SPSP and we were talking about how the research on role models and identity safety, like none of them had really considered an intersectional perspective. You know, it was just like assumed that, you know, interventions that were effective for white women would be effective for black women or Latino women. And like, I I have like a memory of us like being in our hotel room because, um, and and I think Ingrid might've been there because even though, and Tabitha, (laughs) because even though we are, you know, all out of graduate school, we all still stay together (laughs) when when we're at SBS because hotels are expensive. And we just kind of talked about it. And then, I mean, we went and did it. Like, I think we piloted some data like that spring semester, like when we got back from SBSP and the collaboration was born, you know? <laughs> um, so I was still in my postdoc. So it worked out well that you all stayed with me. I still had no money. <laughs> um, but I had, um, obviously in graduate school, I did a lot of basic attitudes research. And then during my postdoc, I started to look at more intervention work, uh, bias reduction work, um, still relevant to attitudes, obviously. And India had done more stereotyping and prejudice work in grad school as well. And so we're like, well, we like each other. And look, we're doing similar work now. We should collaborate. And so we're like, what should we collaborate on? Um, so I think we wanted to collaborate together. But yeah, then we had this research idea. Um, and then I remember we pilot tested the stimuli um, but we needed money to actually collect like the, the data. Um, and it worked out really well because I started my new job at IUPUI. Um, and so then I had startup money. And so I could, we actually like had the funds to be able to do some of this work. And I feel like we ran two studies um, my first semester there and wrote them up in spring semester. Like I'm never this quick about stuff, but <laughs> um, and then we submitted it over the summer. So we were really quick about it, that first paper. Yeah, it's interesting. So in terms of like the connection to the kinds of topics that are on this show in terms of opinions and persuasion yeah. and stuff, I think it's it's interesting that both of you independently started in labs that were like very kind of basic attitudes and, and opinion stuff. And then both of you independently followed paths that brought you to similar sorts of other topics and then sort of rejoined up <laughs> at that point. So in terms of like you know, how much of that early attitude stuff informed kind of the way you were thinking about bias and stereotyping and that stuff as you started to kind of branch out on your own and do things independently? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, I guess there's a lot of ways I could, I could personally answer that. um, Because I I feel like I really switched directions a lot when I went to my postdoc. Um, But part of the reason why I even think I got hired for that postdoc, because I was like, I didn't come in with any (laughs) women in STEM experience. Um, So it's, yeah, it's funny to think that I was yeah convinced them that I would be a good fit, but I'm happy they thought so. Um, but um, they, you know, I mean, changing biases or changing attitudes, and they actually were kind of interested in the elaboration likelihood model as a potential framework um, for mm-hmm. these video interventions that they ended up creating. Um, and so I, you know, got to tell them I took attitudes with uh, Dr. Rich Petty. And um, so right away, I just think basic attitudes work is really relevant to a lot of real world issues. Um, and so I was able to convince them of that. So that's like that first step. I don't know, but with this specific research, I don't know, India, if you want to add more to that. I mean, I think everything you say, I, you know, I agree with. And I think also the nice thing is that we are well-trained. And so in trying to design studies where we rule out 
alternative explanations and, and thinking about kind of the theoretical framework. I definitely know some of the work that is under review that's not published where we're looking at allyship and trying to identify how we can kind of get Black women to perceive white, you know, white women as persons who have their best interests in heart. I, I mean, we pulled from persuasion literatures thinking about, well, if we can have someone endorse that person who's part of that in-group, that might then may be a more convincing and persuasive view. So I think that I like our research for a lot of different reasons, but I feel like underneath it, you still see the parts of us that are very much a reflection of, you know, we came from Ohio State, we worked with basic attitudes researchers. So even just to sort of uh, start from the beginning of the kind of work that you're doing. So <laughs> for folks who, who aren't sure what, <laughs> what this talk of allyship and all that stuff is about. Yeah. So the, the, the work that you've been doing a lot is looking at in STEM fields, issues related to belongingness, diversity and inclusion, right? Is that that's a broad umbrella, but does that that seem to capture it? Yeah, yeah. So what could you sort of outline even before we look at the kind of intervention stuff that you're doing? Like, what are the issues at the center of it? Like, what are the problems that needed to be solved? And, and, and what was sort of producing those problems? So I think um, the general question that we sought to answer at first, um, we we know that role models, having people that look like you, representation can be really helpful, um, particularly a lot of that's been looked at in STEM fields. Um, we also know that in a lot of STEM fields, there's a stark gender disparity. So a lot of that work has looked at how role models and representation matter for women broadly. Um, but if you look at women broadly, you might accidentally treat women as a monolithic group. So you might not sort of appreciate the variability among different types of women or the fact that women can have multiple marginalized identities. And so the question we sought to answer was, uh, we first looked at this with Black women and then uh, Latina women. Would it be more beneficial to have representation or have a role model who matches their ethnicity or their gender or both? And sort of really broadly, you know, can a white woman act as a role model for Black and Latina women? Because we just didn't feel like that had really been studied yet. Um, and it would suggest, okay, you know, it's not a one size fits all with regard to these role model interventions. Like not all women role models are going to be beneficial for all women. And we really need to acknowledge and understand these important differences. Because even though women are underrepresented in STEM, um, Black and Latina women are really, really underrepresented in STEM, like making up what, 2% respectively, um, but being what are they, 6% of the population? So we just see like, there's just not representation um, when you get, you know, looking at minoritized identities with regard to both gender and race. So role models, the, the idea was to think that those might help contribute to expanding that representation of like people who are interested in pursuing it sort of in terms of what the problem is, is it that people aren't opting into these fields or people are dropping out of them? I'm just curious kind of what, what that looks like. Um, I would say a little bit of both, right? So in terms of like, you know, thinking about representation, like having access to those role models and being exposed to those role models can spark interest, it can spark attraction. So you're more likely to be attracted to those fields and feel like you want to engage. But but then you even think if you are someone who does have those interests and you are engaged in those areas, if you are in an environment where you don't see people who you feel like you can relate to, it can, the experience can be very isolating. Um, and then that then may, you know, when you don't feel that sense of belonging, you're less likely to persist, you're less likely to graduate, you're less likely to go on to enter the STEM field. Um, and so kind of making sure that, you know, you have role models that can kind of spark that attraction, you know, bring people to the field, but also kind of making sure that even once they are identified with the field, having access to persons who can kind of encourage that sense of belonging so they'll persist and go on, you know, and kind of stay in STEM. 
So could, could you sort of unpack maybe one of the early studies that you did that sort of gave us a taste of what what makes for a role model that actually fosters this sense of belonging that might help retain students in STEM fields who otherwise might feel marginalized? Yeah. Um, so the first paper we did, so it wasn't actually with students um, because they're more expensive to recruit, but we did get some grant funding to do that. Um, so we started it with participants from the general population. So using like MTurk or mechan- Amazon's Mechanical Turk um, participants. And we recruited Black women and we showed them a fictional STEM company so we said like, okay, imagine you were an employee at this company. We just want to get your impressions of it. And then um, they were assigned to either learn about no employee at the company, or they learned about a black woman, a black man, or a white woman who worked at the company. So they were like, they randomly saw one of those three employees or no employees. And uh, basically what we found was that um, participants anticipated more belonging at the company and they thought they would feel more comfortable. um, They would get along more with their colleagues when they learned about a black woman or a black man at the company. But the white woman didn't differ from just not learning about anybody. So she didn't hurt, but she didn't help. And uh, an important mechanism was uh, feeling similar to the employee. Um, So participants felt more similar to the black man or black woman um, than they did to the white woman. So we found that that was an important, just sort of, it helped explain our effect. And so the um, intersectional part, right? The Mm -hmm. idea is like, if you weren't to account for this intersectional identity thing, you'd have gone, oh, well, a white woman as a woman should be a perfectly good role model for women who want to pursue these kinds of careers. But what you're finding is once, once we start to tweak who that woman role model is, it changes the game for people. Yeah. So, and it's, so yeah, she might be a perfectly great role model for other white women or other, you know, I don't want to say like, I don't want to speak for all women of all identities. We probably have a lot more research to do, but she might be really good for certain women, but we were finding, at least in this study, she was not effective for black women. So I don't know, India, if you want to talk about, because we obviously need, we need to replicate this with students. (laughs) Yeah. And so um, the paper that Eva just was talking about, we we had two studies in that, and we did actually replicate that first effect that we found, again, with Black women um, for the general population. Um, And then once we got some grant money, um, we were able to recruit um, Black women students. And so um, uh, a second paper where we we kind of published some of this work, um, in our first study, we recruited Black women students, uh, but these were Black women students who were not in STEM. Um, and the setup was very similar to what we did in this earlier research. So we exposed them to a fictitious school of science and engineering. Imagine that you're a student at this school. Um, and then they see a professor and we manipulated the race and the gender of the professor. So um, it was either a white man, a white woman, um, a black man or a black woman. So very similar. It's just we swapped out that kind of that no employee condition from our earlier work for that that white man. And then we just asked them to tell us how much they think that they would feel a sense of belonging, you know, after they see one of these randomly assigned profiles. Um, and we replicated what we found with our Black women from the general population. Um, so they're reporting a higher um, anticipated sense of belonging when they see either a Black man or a Black woman professor. Um, but again, we're finding that that white woman professor is doing very little. Um, and the white woman professor actually did not differ from our white man professor. And so here we have a few studies, you know, under our belt that are kind of highlighting that that shared racial identity is really important. And we also, again, found evidence of perceived similarity as that important mechanism. So they feel more similar to those with those shared racial identities. Um, and then that is what is then leading to that greater sense of belonging. 
are these are these ones that had the stigma consciousness variable as part of them? Yeah. So could you could you explain what stigma consciousness is and and why that would be relevant to either? I, I think you found it sort of was only for folks who who are especially high in stigma consciousness that, that you find these kinds of effects. So what what is this and 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 what did you find? Well, I'm gonna let you go for it, Eva. <laughs> I, I could <laughs> I guess I could start directing them at either of you, but I don't know which <laughs> I know, is better. We can, I know. We can I know. Through, that's okay. We'll just like go back and forth. Um, <laughs> yeah. So um, with stigma consciousness, so stigma consciousness, um, individuals who are high, this is um, a concept that's been studied for a really long time, um, but individuals who are high in stigma consciousness are aware that different aspects of their identity are devalued. And so in the first study that I I talked about a little bit ago, we measured um, stigma consciousness with regard to gender, race, and gender and race. So to what extent are you worried that people will judge you negatively because of your gender or because of your race or because of your gender and race. And what we found was that, so we do, yeah, so we see the effects are stronger for people who are, and it was weird. Um, you would have thought that maybe we would have seen like for, if you're high in gender stigma consciousness, um, the white woman would be better. Um, but we didn't find that. We just found a really similar pattern of results across all measures of stigma consciousness. And it might be because we measured them at the same time. But basically what we found is that on any level of stigma consciousness, the effects are higher between the white woman and then the black man or black woman. But also stigma consciousness, if you think you're going to be devalued uh, based on one of your identities, that's it doesn't feel good. And so we found that it led to lower anticipated belonging. So basically, like if I think I'm devalued along a di- identity dimension, then I'm worried that I'm not going to fit in or be valued, you know, in this STEM company where I know my race and gender are you know, negatively stereotyped or not valued. And that's before you get any information about a role model. You're just saying sort of, I just expect yeah. to be valued in this place. Yeah. And we see that because we see that in the no profile condition. So like there's just this negative relationship. Um, and we see the negative relationship in the white woman condition. And we also saw it in the black man condition. Um, so even when they had a black male role model, they still higher levels of stigma consciousness still related to lower anticipated belonging. However, and this is when having both um, identities matching seems to be important, uh, when they had a Black woman role model, uh, that negative relationship with stigma consciousness went away. Meaning, it sounds like it means for people who normally have this feeling of stigma consciousness, having this role model, having this person in this company who matches sort of both of these dimensions addresses that concern yeah yeah it mitigates those concerns so then they are like okay well maybe i actually will belong in this company and is it that that folks who have lower levels of stigma consciousness right people who go i guess i don't know how low the lows get in this in your sample but people who are going you know oh i have no no concept that that anything about me would be a problem for this place that i'm going is it that those people that just don't care who the people working there are, they just generally feel like, yeah, I can do this. So you said in terms of persons who are lower in stigma consciousness, is it just that they're they're not paying as much attention to kind of what's in the environment? Mm-hmm. Sure. I think I think that's one way of thinking about it. And I think as you know, Eva said, we're not the only people that study stigma consciousness. Obviously there it's it's very relevant to work that relates to like belonging and role models. And in general, people who are higher in stigma consciousness just seem to be very vigilant, right? Like they're paying attention to cues in the environment that signal safety, and they're paying attention to to cues in the environment that signal threat. 
right? And so kind of in the absence of a clear cue that their identity is safe there, they're going to be more likely to report that lower sense of belonging. Hey, everyone. It's me. Sorry to interrupt, but I wanted to take a quick second to tell you about an exciting new project of mine, and it has to do with a cool new platform called Knowable. Like, you're able to know something. Knowable. Knowable features digestible audio courses on all sorts of topics. For example, you can learn about healthy eating from New York Times food writer Mark Bittman. You can learn about space from a NASA astronaut. You can learn about launching a startup from the co-founder of Reddit. And you can learn about persuasion from me. (laughs) My course, The Science of Persuasion, is on there now. In it, I introduce a bunch of fundamental insights from the long history of research on what changes people's minds. From working around people's resistance to the qualities of persuasive people, to the ways in which messages connect with unique audiences, I weave together all sorts of research in psychology, communications, and political science, and present it in a way that uh, I hope is entertaining. Anyhow, to listen to my course and all the other cool stuff on Knowable, you can go to knowable.fyi or look at the show notes for a link. Check it out. So some of the work that you do also looks at um, allyship in these processes. So maybe we can pivot a little bit to that to sort of be like the jumping off point of sort of uh, kind of refining this idea of role models to say that, well, intersectional role models actually are important beyond the kinds of things we would talk about before. But if we go a step beyond and go like, is there a way that we can foster a, a climate that people would feel belonging in, even if they might ordinarily not, if that climate at the moment tends not to have role models who are sort of tailor-made to the kinds of people you'd want to recruit? Uh, um Sure. So interestingly, we both, um, the paper that Evo talked about, as well as the paper I was just talking about, we looked at allyship in both of those. Um, And kind of part of the reason why we were interested in allyship is because we realized that the white woman role model wasn't helping. Right. And um, I think interestingly, we thought about our own experiences, you know, so thinking about who our role models were, who were the people who helped us get to where we were. And, you know, we didn't really have access to people who shared our racial identities. And so we kind of, you know, I think at the the time when we were first interested in this question, there wasn't a ton of research on allyship and social psych. I'd say there's there's not really a ton of research now. I think it's it's becoming more relevant. People are trying to better understand it. And so, um, you know, kind of going back to the paper Eva was talking about. um, In that second study, what we did is we um, included a condition where we had a white woman who was an ally. Um, And so how we kind of framed her as an ally, um, as we said, she was someone who acknowledges the challenges that Black and Latino women face in STEM, recognizes that they are underrepresented, but wants their voices to be heard. um, And so she works to actively recruit them into um, her lab. And so what we found in that that work is that when we exposed our Black women to an ally, that it helped. Right. So it seemed overall that when you feel as though there is a white person, a white woman specifically in the study who um, are in this actual company who is an ally, that we then found that they reported higher belonging. And so um, we were really excited. We were like, okay, allyship seems to help. But then, of course, we wanted to look at stigma consciousness as a moderator. Um, And so um, I feel like I did a nice way of setting Eva up. So I'll let her talk about what we found (laughs) with stigma consciousness. Um, 
Yeah. So in the first study, uh, basically the allyship was really effective for people who were low in stigma consciousness, um, but not for women who were high in stigma consciousness. So if they were high in stigma consciousness, um, they actually didn't really trust that she was an ally, which was interesting um, because we actually asked them, to what extent do you think this woman cares about helping black women? And they just didn't believe her, which makes sense. I mean, if you're aware of, um, you know, the pervasive racism that exists in society and this woman that you've never interacted with is just saying like, I'm, you know, I'm an ally, you can trust me. Um, There's not really the stranger, there's not really good reasons necessarily to just believe her. Um, So yeah, we found that stigma consciousness for um, that study was a really important moderator. Have you found a condition where allyship offers these benefits for for people who are, are high in stigma consciousness? Yes and no. Look, yes. I'll say yes. Um, so kind of going back to the the PWQ paper, um, I talked about the first study, but in the second study, we actually recruited Black women students who were in STEM. Um, and this was a correlational study. And we compared um, Black women STEM majors who were at a women's only HBC, and that's a women's only historically Black college, to majors who were at a PWI, so a predominantly white institution. Um, And one of the things that we found is that um, in general, this was an environment where our Black women STEM majors, even those high in stigma consciousness, right? Um, And we actually found that as a sidebar, we found that our PWR, let me make sure I'm saying this correctly. (laughs) We found that our Black women STEM majors at our HBC, that overall they were just higher in stigma consciousness than um, our Black women STEM majors at the PWI. Um, But interestingly, stigma consciousness positively correlated with belonging. And so um, I always like to highlight that result because I think that um, when I talk about stigma consciousness, people think that it's like this very harmful, bad thing that when people are higher in stigma consciousness, we need to do something about it. Like, it's like, how do we get rid of the stigma consciousness? Um, and what this finding kind of highlights that is in the right environment, it actually can result in, in these kind of positive outcomes. And of course it's correlational. So we don't know if Black women who are higher in stigma consciousness might seek those kind of environments out, or maybe you're more aware of it now that you're in that environment. Um, but needless to say, kind of going back to um, the HBC environment, overall, our Black women still majors at the HBC were more likely to believe that their role models that didn't share racial identity, that they were allies. And then that allyship was positively correlated with belonging. And so that kind of tells us that in the right conditions, you will perceive individuals who don't share racial identity as a ally, and then that'll have positive implications for belonging. Um, and kind of what we've done since then is try to experimentally um, identify how we can expose um, Black women who are high in super consciousness to the right set of conditions that will convince them that that white person is indeed an ally. Um, and what we found is that it's really important for someone who's part of their in-group to signal that they can mm-hmm. trust that person. So I always give the example of Beyonce because, of course, I'm also wearing Beyonce on my shirt, right? (laughs) Of course, I give the example of Beyonce endorsing Hillary Clinton before the election in 2016, Hmm. right? So here you have a person who's part of your in-group, someone that you you presumably can trust, who's then saying, yeah, I've had positive experiences with this person. They do actually look out for our group. And under those conditions, Black women, even those who are high in stigma consciousness, will actually trust that the white woman is a ally. And then that then relates to greater belonging. We sort of think of it as a 
like if you get down to really basically what we're doing, it's basically a persuasion issue. So I'm trying to persuade you that you can trust this person or that I can be mm-hmm. trusted. Um, we've also looked at this beyond just like a specific person, but an organization more broadly. So if you're trying to convince somebody, hey, this organization will, you know, we treat our employees well, um, people are allies in this organization. Again, it's a persuasion thing. So how do we persuade you that you can trust this person or that you can trust this organization? Um, and so what we've really done is it's really just in group persuasion effects and that hmm. we're saying, okay, so if you have a black woman say, um, you can really trust this person or, and or, hey, you can trust this organization. I actually found that I had these wonderful mentors who had different identities that didn't match my own. That can lead to positive effects such as anticipated belonging in the organization or believing that that person actually is an ally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems, seems like, yeah, conveying that you're an authentic ally, yeah. right? That this is not yeah. just a, a show. We've been working on some stuff with, like, I, I do work in moral and, mm-hmm. you know, moral rhetoric and stuff. Yeah. And I've often wondered the same sort of thing about, like, if I convey my commitment to diversity and inclusion initiatives as being, like, a, re- a morally motivated thing, and I think there's actually work on this, that people go, like, oh, that seems actually maybe legitimate. Like, you, you actually are going to do that because you think it's the right thing to do. Versus I go... We're going to look way better if we can diversify mm-hmm. our board. Then you go, well, I don't, I, yeah, I know you're saying it, but I don't, it doesn't really give me that kind of positive inclusion vibe <laughs> that I'm looking for. Yeah. Yeah. So how much of this, I guess, depends. What, one of the things I was thinking about when I was looking at the kinds of role models in these studies is they're often, I think, people who are in an institution that you yourself are considering being part of, Right. Whereas oftentimes when people talk about representation, sometimes we meet it in in this more broad sense of just like, oh, can I like look and survey this field? And do I see people who are similar to me or not? Mm -hmm. And maybe I end up in in an institution that doesn't have like a particular role model. But is there some is there something to sort of like a broad abstract representation? Or is it really more important that it's like, well, where I'm going to be, I need there to be someone for me? That's a good question. Um, so yeah, a lot of it, we've looked at it with the person specifically in the institution, but I do think when we are especially getting down to questions of what can somebody do, say an instructor do if they don't have, um, the overlapping or matching identity. And I do think there are things that instructors can do to broadly show, Hey, there is representation in this field. And we have found um, that they're effective. So we Mm -hmm. had a paper come out, um, over the summer that showed that if you show a um, short six minute video of a uh, black female computer scientist to black female students, it increases their um, interest in computer science. And so that's an example of how having that representation broadly in a field can potentially spark attraction to that field. We have another paper where we showed for Latina high school students that if they have, it was a hour and a half long panel um, with Latina scientists across like a variety of different um, STEM domains, that that short panel can increase the Latina students' interest and sense of belonging in STEM. So, so I think we see it both like, is there somebody at this institution and will I feel like I belong there as well as more broadly, okay, I'm interacting with somebody who I don't, you know, they're not at my high school, they're not at my college, but they are broadly making me also feel like I can belong in this field. Yeah. So I think of even in terms of how we teach, since we all teach, making sure that we like include pictures, right? Like, so making sure that students are seeing these diverse role models on, in terms of just 
exposing them to person too. They might feel more or less similar too because they have that, you know, shared or matching identity as a way of kind of thinking about how can we encourage people or attract people to particular fields. Yeah, I wonder if some of it goes back to the idea from before about is the issue about people not opting into these fields or is it an issue of people dropping out of these fields? And it, it could be sort of that kind of broad level representation helps encourage people to pursue those opportunities, but to stick around if you're not getting the same, that same kind of support while you're in a place, maybe maybe that causes yeah. some some problems. That's a good point. So I imagine that, you know, having the more like seeing the person in, you know, in the lecture side would help spark attraction. But then with regard to retention, you might need that support in the day to day. And maybe you can get that through allies who really over time build. I mean, I think to really, truly be an ally and to really, truly be trusted, it probably takes a lot of interactions, a lot of proof that you are one. Um, So having that support day in and day out, and then also having instructors who maybe look like you. Um, I, I saw a question posed on Twitter once about like, when was the first time you had an instructor or like, did you ever have an instructor that matched your identities? And it was really weird to reflect and think, Oh wait, no, I haven't. Hmm. I never did when I like, I've been in school, you know, I was in school forever and I never actually had a Latina um, instructor. So I didn't until I got to graduate school and um, I was telling uh, my husband this the other day, like I minored in quant because we all did. But I also minored in African-American studies. And the first time that I had a black woman professor was when I took an African-American studies class at Ohio State. And, you know, so it's like I was very far along in in kind of my education. But but yeah, I think that, you know, the, the point about like what happens once you're in that environment is really important in particular, because we know that when you kind of look at the experiences of women in STEM, and this is across all identities, it's not the most supportive environment, right? And so it's probably even more important to have people that you feel like you, who can understand your experience or at least try to remove some of those obstacles. So having those allies and having those those role models is probably even more critical there. And it probably doesn't always have to be an instructor too. Um, so it can be like an older peer. Um, that could also be helpful, having those sort of communities. Yeah, I think being exposed to these kinds of ideas is also useful from a vantage point like my own because I sort of have to reckon with this this thing of like oh yeah the spaces that I'm in so often were really built for white guys who have looked like me for the last however many years and to be like oh yeah so like growing up all I had were role models and uh, teachers Mm -hmm. and peers who I felt that kind of similarity with and so I think it's important not only to sort of realize like oh yes we should sort of build and diversify for the sake of doing uh, just what seems appropriate, (laughs) but also as this thing of like, well, these spaces might feel comfortable for people, but that doesn't mean that they're working, right? That doesn't mean that that that's the way that they need to continue to be. Are there sort of practical implications that that you've sort of taken from this work in terms of talking to colleagues at at your universities or or, or people in other institutions who are interested in in what this has to say about who they're hiring and, and enrolling? I mean, yeah, I think that like one thing that I just try to reiterate again and again is that if you want to have a conversation about attracting, you know, Black, Latina students or students of diverse identities, you have to have faculty there, you know, like recognizing that um, students are, you know, they're going to graduate in four years. And if you want to continue to keep that stream of students coming in and you want those students to continue to be successful, um, 
it's important to try to make sure that you also are doing what you can to diversify the pool of people that you're hiring, right? Like I 100%, you know, appreciate all the persons who are geared towards like, how can I be a better ally? Can you talk more about that piece? What does that look like? And I'm like, I could talk about that all day until I'm blue in the face. But like, I think one of the things that our studies highlight is that um, it's it's a lot harder to to try to convince and convey allyship that persons who aren't of that you know shared identity might not automatically trust that that's the case and that you want to be there and and you want to support them. Um, and so you know, I think the obvious practical implication is you know put your money where your mouth is. And, and make sure that you're doing what you can to hire um, people of the, the students that you want, you want to see represented in that, that school. Yeah. So, so where's the, where's this work going? What's on the horizon? You, you, you loosely alluded to unpublished research that's, that's uh, <laughs> in, in, in progress. So what are the, what are kind of the next steps now that we've sort of established that these role models matter, that this perspective is important? What's on the horizon? Well, one, um, so one component that we haven't talked about is if we get even more like into the mechanism, like why um, why do uh, Black and Latina women feel more similar to role models matching their ethnicity rather than their gender? Um, it's we've identified that it's because um, again it's that higher sensitivity to discrimination due to their ethnicity slash race um, relative to gender, because again. We know, especially, I mean, this summer made it so clear, um, at least in the U.S., there's um, definitely an issue of um, systematic racism. And, you know, I mean, so it's not surprising then that Black and Latina women would be more sensitive to uh, racism than sexism. And so we find that they identify more with those role models because they believe that they've had these shared experiences with discrimination. So they believe like they've had to go through similar challenges and similar struggles. And so... Now that we've identified that, we're sort of interested in continuing to understand that a little bit better. Um, so we actually, we got a grant from the National Science Foundation to continue to test this question. Um, so some of the questions we're going to ask are, is there something unique about identity-based adversity or discrimination? So knowing that this person has spent their whole life dealing with you know, the same sort of discrimination that I've dealt with, does that foster more of a connection and identification compared to um, just like knowing that this one person struggled in a class. So like I struggled in my intro to programming. I'm like, I don't know what intro to calculus, whatever. Um, <laughs> I struggled in this class. They struggled in that class. Um, you know, so we've had this shared struggle, but you know, it's one instance. Does that foster identification, but do so to a lesser extent of like having a lifetime of having to overcome this, this adversity. And then also, um, we know that in certain STEM fields, there's a really stark gender disparity. And so um, we are also curious in, say, a computer science or a physics or engineering field where, you know, sexism has been documented. Um, we know that there's just like women are very highly underrepresented. In that situation, might Black and uh, Latina women be more likely to identify with a white woman? So might that make sexism salient? And might in that situation, a white woman role model be equally as effective as a Black or Latinx role model? A lot of the, the work that you, I mean, all the work that you're doing is STEM related. Is there is there a specific reason for that? Or would you think that this would extend beyond that? I don't know. Like, I think we could get that question all the time. Like, why STEM? I think because, you know, from a, a practical standpoint, it, it's clearly an area where you see that like Black and Latina women are underrepresented. But they're underrepresented in a lot of areas. So even if you just think about, in, you know, upper management and leadership roles as well, or, you know, as you move up the ranks in any organization, 
you're going to see fewer women of color being kind of in those positions. So we definitely think that it's applicable outside of, of STEM. Um, the study that uh, Eva mentioned where we kind of were looking at um, changing perceptions of an organization with this kind of in-group persuasion, uh, we actually looked at that in a context outside of STEM. Right. So we have a, a few we have a few of those uh, of, of those studies as well. But, yeah, we definitely think that um, this applies beyond STEM as well. We actually have a new study that we're both really excited about. That's well, I don't know. If we're, are we allowed to talk about under review stuff? Are you asking me? I don't care what you did. You okay, talk sure. Just, you want. <laughs> Go I, ahead. Like, I mean, I know. I guess I should like ask India, are you comfortable with me talking about under <laughs> Look, I'm like, is this the Kamala stuff? Yeah. Um, oh, God, yes. I'm so excited about it. Yeah. Oh, cool so about really, it. Yeah. yeah um, so basically, uh, we think this would also um, rely uh, or relate to politics and increasing Black women's sense of visibility and belongingness in politics generally. And so we have a study where we looked at um, white men, Black men, white women, and Black women's reactions to um, Senator Kamala Harris dropping out of the um, Democratic primary. So we, we ran the study like two weeks after she dropped out. And we found that in comparison to all of the other groups, it led to Black women feeling significantly lower belonging and lower visibility in politics after she dropped out, kind of regardless of whether they completely supported her politically. It was still just having that uh, shared identity and knowing that she you know, had overcome similar adversity was really important. Um, another interesting thing, though, is that um, white women and Black men also were adversely harmed, just to a lesser extent. And then we've, we've also looked at it experimentally. So we, you know, obviously wanted to run a, a true experiment after that. Um, so that's some work that's in prog- or under review right now. Did you look again what, when, when now she's back on the scene? <sighs> no, <laughs> we should have. We'll see when, if she gets elected. Um, maybe we'll still be able to run it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's cross our fingers that in a couple yeah. months you'll be able to run <laughs> yeah. a study um, like that. Yeah. I, I was wondering too, in terms of other identities, one of the things that comes to mind is, I know at Ball State, I see all sorts of stickers outside of faculty stores that say, I'm a first-gen college student. And that being another potential instance of this, of being like, you know, it's it's less visible in the kinds of ways that a lot of the kind of identities we're talking about are. But they presumably, I was thinking of this when you're talking about, is it enough just to have like, oh, there's like a shared adversity, right? And maybe first-gen college student isn't, doesn't maybe doesn't feel like an identity as much like a self-definer but it still kind of has all those qualities of like fostering belonging and feeling like people have these ideas about me that that I can't succeed in this outlet yeah well I would just say we're we're definitely very interested in thinking about identities that might be less visible like we've we've talked about first gen as well um, but in terms of being aware that a person has, experience adversity in, in, in some kind of sense. Um, kind of what I was, what I immediately thought of is we have a paper that, that is looking at when you teach women, white women, majority sure white, yeah. yeah, majority white women about um, how gender bias harms fathers who are scientists, that this then allows them to kind of identify with that male scientist. So recognizing that mm. there's a shared sense of adversity. And so it kind of just points back to kind of some of these questions that we're, we're really interested in, in how are the ways that that shared sense of adversity can kind of foster a sense of identification. Uh, that's one way we've kind of looked at the question. Um, I want to, I have some other thoughts, but I want to allow Eva to kind of follow up first. Yeah. Um, well, I think one interesting thing with that father paper um, was that we, so it actually, they didn't think that he had necessarily experienced like, because 
gender stereotypes just impact men and women so differently. And so even though they can be constraining for men, it's just constraining in a different way. And so they didn't necessarily see him as like having had similar experiences, but they felt a lot of empathy for him. And then that fostered identification. So that was another route that can sort of lead to that connection, um, which, you know, has been very well established in the intergroup relations work. We just were kind of looking at it with regard to, can this help make somebody a better role model and guide in the field, like our mentor? India, you said you had other thoughts. I wanted to let you express them if you had them. No, I think Eva hit the the nail on the head. So kind of thinking about the fact that it um, it doesn't always have to be the exact same kind of shared adversity, but I, I definitely think that that's a question I've been interested in and my students are like interested in. So um, to what extent does someone else's experience with um, shared adversity or with adversity in general kind of then make you feel as though you can identify with the person? Um, so I don't want to start tiptoeing into other people's research, uh, but uh, my my lab has been reading a lot of work on stigma solidarity by, um, I call her Mo. Her name is Marine Craig, though, and Jen <laughs> and that group and kind of thinking about the ways in which it can kind of inform our own research because I have students who have questions like, to what extent could a um, a gay woman be an effective role model for a Black woman, right? So they have a shared identity, but at the same time, they might be, there might be other identities that are salient. And so I think that there's, it's an area that is ripe for kind of trying to, to look at the ways in which adversity impacts people and how that might then foster a connection when it does versus when it doesn't. We started to look at some of these questions um, with like Latina women as role models for Black women. And we find that it's kind of complicated in that because there's so much variability in how Latina women present. So, you know, Latino women can look phenotypically white versus uh, be or be an Afro-Latina. And we find that a phenotypically white Latina woman doesn't work as well. Um, I don't want to say it's like we're still more helpful than a white woman, slightly more, um, but um, that an Afro-Latina is a beneficial role model for Black women. Um, and we've also started to look at um, issues like will a biracial woman act as a role model? So I'm waiting. I'm slowly trying to get to the point where we ask the question, will a uh, biracial uh, Puerto Rican white woman act as a role model for every... I'm just kidding. Um, it's my identity. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'll, I'll be on the edge of my seat while <laughs> waiting for the results to come out. But uh, we've only scratched the surface of this kind of stuff. So thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank we you. appreciate the opportunity. All right, that'll do it for another episode of Opinion Science. Thanks to Eva Pietri and India Johnson for talking about the interesting and important work that they're doing. Poke around the show notes for this episode to get links to each of their websites so you can keep up with their work. You'll also find links to the research we talked about and a full transcript of the conversation. If you're into the podcast, uh, thank you. <laughs> and please consider leaving a review somewhere on the internet. Apple Podcasts being a great place to do that. Tell your friends, send letters to your family, I don't know, write, write your congressperson, spread the word about the show, and I'll be super appreciative. OpinionSciencePodcast.com, at OpinionSciPod, you know where to find it. Oh, and I'm planning on doing a bonus end-of-the-year episode featuring some favorite moments from the first year of this podcast, so let me know. What moments stood out to you? What guests have changed your thinking or, or gave you an aha moment? Find me on Twitter or email me and, and let me know what I should include. Okay, but until then, stay safe, be well, and I'll see you in a couple weeks for more opinion science. Bye-bye. <laughs>